Welcome to the Medical Association of Georgia's award-winning Top Doc Show. With more than 8,000 members who care for patients in every specialty and practice setting, MAG is the leading voice for physicians in Georgia. Go to mag.org to join MAG if you're a physician in Georgia. And thanks to MAG Insurance Agency for its support as a sponsor. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Top Docs. I'm your host and MAG Insurance Agency Senior Vice President, Ryan LaRosa. Today's episode addresses important med mal trends in Georgia. Our guest is Dr. Graham Billingham, who's MedPro's Chief Medical Officer. Dr. Billingham oversees MedPro's patient safety and risk services team. He also leads MedPro's group healthcare advisory boards and supports MedPro's clinical risk claims, underwriting, and sales efforts. Our sincere thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, Dr. Billingham. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me out today. Um, and uh, it's a, a pleasure to speak with you. Absolutely. We, we appreciate you making time as well. It's, it's really special to have you on here. Um, so uh, what's going on in the MedMal market today? Uh, well, it's a good question. Um, and I would uh, describe it at a high level as both changing and challenging. Um, I think what we read in the marketplace is uh, a very mixed read. Um, if you look at the healthcare platform, uh, an explosion of technology, continued consolidation across all fronts, uh, physicians becoming employed, um, sort of the healthcare changes. And on top of that, you, you add the pandemic. Um, but in the marketplace, um, we still see um, increased uh, underwriting losses, uh, which, as we'll talk about, are driving a lot of uh, changes um, uh, and and. Also, we still see carriers who have, um, over the years, um, uh, excess surplus, um, so they still have some capacity in the marketplace. Um, so it's really overall, it's a mixed picture. Uh, I would describe it as tightening, um, uh, but not in every region and not in every specialty. Yeah. Well, what factors do you think have contributed to some of these loss trends in the market? Well, I think the biggest three, um, anytime we talk about loss trends, the, the three things we want to discuss are both the frequency of claims. Um, and again, uh, that uh, varies depending upon the specialty uh, and the region. Um, but overall, in the national marketplace, the frequency of malpractice um, has had a 10-year um, uh, decrease, if you will, um, uh, particularly uh, in the last year, uh, primarily because the amount of claims that were being brought um, to be adjudicated in the legal system was, was shut down. So a real fall off, uh, if you will, in, in frequency of, of claims across the board. Um, although some, there are some indications um, that that uh, run uh, may be finished and it may, things may be ticking up, which again is impacting the marketplace. The second is on severity. Um, despite the frequency changes, uh, severities continue to tick along at sort of two to 4% increase, not only on the physician side, but also on the hospital side uh, as well. And what those two things do is they affect the combined ratio. So the combined ratio uh, is the uh, amount that it's paid out, uh, including defense costs and indemnity payments. And as soon as that number or that ratio uh, climbs above 100, then you're basically paying out more as a carrier than you are taking in. Um, and in the old days, uh, when people could make up some of that loss, 
um, through investment portfolio, that has proven harder to do in, in recent years. So the combined ratios in today's marketplace are headed north of 100, and that's affecting um, uh, and impacting changes that we see in the marketplace. Yeah. So how would you say then that, uh, you know, we hear the terms of hard and soft markets. How do you think those differ in, in the effects those have on physician practices? Uh, it's a great question. Um, and really understanding that is um, uh, that insurance, like many other markets, uh, is cyclical in nature. Um, and in my lifetime, 30 years plus, I've seen three of these cycles uh, come through. Um, and um, what happens in a hardening market, uh, and some people would say we're right there or, or entering one, <clears throat> Uh, is that the capacity or the availability of malpractice insurance starts to shrink a little bit um, as some carriers uh, either exit the market or they tighten up the amount of available insurance product that they have. Some try and hang on and some actually try and grow in, in a hard market. So the hard market <clears throat> generally sees an increase in pricing, um, a, a decrease in competition uh, that, that is out there. Um, and also a change in underwriting standards. So they may tighten up and things that were easily insurable five years ago may not be so in the future. And the last thing I, I would say is in areas of coverage also tend to tighten up. On the soft market, we see the exact opposite. There's more capacity in the marketplace, which brings more competition in, which drives prices down. And you also may see on the underwriting side, um, carriers that are willing to uh, write and to cover uh, losses that they weren't in a hard market. So very cyclical in nature. Um, and some would uh, argue that we're certainly firming if not coming into a hard market. No, absolutely. So those financial ratings really come into play when, you're, when we're looking at hard markets, I imagine, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Yes. So focusing, uh, getting a little local uh, for, uh, for all of uh, everyone listening, um, what does Georgia's MedMal landscape look like today? How would you describe it? Yeah, I would say it's tough. Uh, it's, been, it's been tough for uh, five or six years. Uh, we just spoke about combined ratios and the combined ratios have been north of 100 um, uh, in Georgia, primarily affected by both a rise in frequency of malpractice claims and also severity. So Georgia uh, state-specific has had sort of a double whammy, and it has not been immune uh, to the national phenomenon of shock verdicts. Um, I took a look at uh, Georgia data, and in the last five or six years, uh, there are 10 claims uh, that are over $10 million. So those three things are really impacting the local marketplace um, in terms of um, uh, tightening it up or making it firmer. Um, increased frequency, increasing severity, and those large verdicts. Yeah, and would you say that dealing with the shock verdicts, the effect those have on med mal insurance specifically, I, I imagine that really soaks up a lot of that capacity you were talking about earlier, correct? Yeah, and, and um, on both the primary and secondary uh, side. So the primary market is, you know, what we would call first dollar coverage, your, your, your policy. But keep in mind that insurance carriers uh, often will buy reinsurance to cover those excessive losses. So when you see, you know, verdicts, 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars, uh, that tends to tighten up both of those. 
Um, so the reinsurers are gonna pass the cost on to um, uh, the primary carriers uh, and then that gets passed on. So shock verdicts, um, uh, and it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, we're not sure uh, how COVID will be, um, uh, claims will be impacted by that. Um, you know, 12 months ago, we saw uh, people in the streets clapping for physicians when they finished their shifts in, in New York um, uh, City. And, and there was a lot of goodwill for people on the front lines, nurses and physicians and healthcare facilities and um, first responders. Um, and now malpractice claims, as you know, is a long tail cycle. If those claims don't come to fruition five or six years uh, down the line, will that goodwill still exist? And the answer to that is, is we don't know. But, but primarily um, uh, the social in, in inflation that we see um, that, you know, 10, $20 million, people hear those numbers, they don't seem to have the impact that they did five, 10 years ago. So we, we are seeing large verdicts um, uh, and it also varies ex extremely by jurisdiction. Absolutely. Well, you know, as we get closer to hopeful, maybe returning to some type of normalcy, you know, what can physicians in Georgia kind of expect to see, uh, you know, with bed mound claims in the next two to three years, are those potentially maybe going to return to normal or is that maybe having, uh, is, could there potentially be a opposite effect? Uh, great question. Um, the, so let me divide that into that answer into three, uh, three buckets. The first bucket um, is the normal med mal um, uh, experience that physicians see. Um, you know, on the uh, primary care side, a lot of that uh, is diagnostic uh, error, either delays or failure to diagnose. And on the surgery side, uh, it has more to do with uh, procedures, uh, complications, uh, th those types of uh, claims. So those are going to continue. Um, but let's now talk about COVID impact um, and, and non-COVID uh, um, claims, if you will. On the COVID impact, there is a surprisingly um, uh, not a lot of COVID-specific claims uh, in, in the United States thus far. There are some, uh, and they are primarily directed toward healthcare facilities and senior care uh, facilities. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And the plaintiffs trying to get their arms around um, how they could potentially um, get batch uh, claims. Uh, those would be class action claims and get you know, a couple of hundred um, uh, uh, claims at one go. Um, but what we tend to see on the COVID side um, uh, is a lot of uh, people reporting incidents, not actual malpractice claims, but, but people think, hey, this may become a claim, either a failure to test somebody, a delay in testing for COVID, complications of COVID, uh, did you use the right PPE, um, uh, did you come into the hospital and get COVID there? Um, so we, we, we definitely see a lot of uh, interest uh, on, on, on those types of areas of exposures that are COVID related. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about defense and plaintiff strategies. But there is a growing sort of hum, if you will, of um, uh, concern about non-COVID treatments. And for the last 12 months, as you know, uh, as many offices uh, shut down um, and switched to telemedicine, which we'll also get a chance to talk about, um, that many screening examinations that are routine, uh, pediatric vaccinations, colonoscopies, mammograms, many of those didn't get done for 12 months. And now those, now we're trying to play catch up and get those people who would have normal routine um, examinations, um, uh, many of which are, are preventive, 
Um, so there is a concern that uh, we'll see um, later stages of cancer, um, uh, for example, than we would have 12 months ago if we had caught those. Absolutely. So, you know, what are your thoughts on what the state of Georgia has done uh, to protect physicians from COVID liability claims? You know, something we focused on a lot here at the Medical Association of Georgia and, and, our, and our advocacy team. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, Georgia has passed uh, a legislation, uh, you know, the act is uh, 588 um, and it was passed a, a year ago and I believe it runs out in July of 2021 this year. And um, it, it took a um, very reasonable and practical approach, which was to change what we call simple negligence to gross negligence. Um, it basically moved the, the bar higher in terms of the burden of proof. Um, uh, also looking at uh, willful and wanton misconduct uh, as a criteria um, and, and basically uh, in COVID related, um, uh, we see this across many states um, and uh, it also in Georgia, there were two uh, caveats or additional legislation that covered auxiliary healthcare workers. So nurses, physician assistants, uh, people who were, um, you know, um, uh, involved in the healthcare that weren't pri primary uh, physicians. So extended um, uh, this sort of a, a limited immunity coverage, uh, if you will, to that group. Uh, and, and a third one was uh, volunteers, uh, people who, who responded, who were trying to help, um, uh, you know, um, uh, on, on things like vaccinations, getting equipment, those types of things. Um, so that, that legislation um, uh, is through July of this year, um, and uh, it follows many of the state legislations to have a higher burden of proof uh, for the plaintiffs with regard to um, uh, some kind of immunity uh, for healthcare workers who are taking care of COVID patients. Yeah, well, what can our physicians, uh, I mean, kind of explain for them, you know, what can they expect to see when these executive orders and these types of acts are, you know, set to expire? So we're seeing some of that now. Um, as you know, um, some states have revisions, um, some have extended. Um, so uh, I've said, no, we're not done with this yet. We're gonna go ahead and ex extend this. Um, you've seen states like New York and Florida, uh, which have either done away with uh, immunity protections or added immunity protections. Um, I don't think there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, belief that we'll see federal tort re relief. Uh, when this first started in the pandemic, I, I think there was um, some, some discussion and uh, some willingness and a thought process that maybe there would be uh, a federal tort relief. I and mean, we haven't seen that. It's been very state specific. Um, and it changes all the time. Uh, so it affects not only uh, the regulations, um, but also areas like uh, telemedicine, uh, which, you know, 14 months ago uh, was a very small percentage of, um, you know, uh, primary care visits and physician visits in general, uh, which um, had its uh, regulations loosened for the ability for uh, physicians to practice and prescribe across state lines. What will happen with those at the end of uh, the pandemic or at the end of the act? The answer is we don't know. Um, some of it will stay on um, uh, and, and some of it will be state specific. So for Georgia specific physicians, I think it's going to be a, a, a wait and watch uh, to see whether uh, this particular type of immunity, um, how it gets challenged in the court system and also if it gets extended by the legislature. 
Well, um, what kind of strategies are plaintiffs and, and defendants considering uh, to address uh, that are, that are uh, to address cases that are related to COVID? Um, good question. So uh, let me start with the plaintiff side because we, we we talked about that a little bit, and that is that um, they're definitely interested in in batch or class action claims, um, and and focused on um, areas of larger exposure such as senior care facilities where maybe there was. 30 or 40 uh, patients who have been affected by uh, COVID. And then, and then uh, the institutions, the healthcare facilities, um, you know, did they have enough PPE? Um, what were their policies and procedures re- with regard to uh, uh, COVID? Um, so those seem to be the areas of, of target, but they may focus on these non-COVID claims that we talked about, um, which doesn't have the same burden of proof. Uh, this sort of growth, gross negligence and, 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 and willful and wanton, um, those are things that are going to be uh, hard for, for plaintiffs to overcome, we think. Um, one of the areas that is of concerning is uh, third-party funding of medical malpractice, um, 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 uh, you know, the, the growth in uh, people, uh, there's money pouring in uh, that takes the burden off the plaintiff of having to front those uh, monies to do their investigations and, and file complaints. So that's an area of, uh, of concern. On the defense side, um, and I think you would, everybody listening to this would nod their head at the, that the standard of care, which is usually a huge portion of the discussion um, uh, in court, um, has changed sometimes on an hourly basis, on a daily basis, um, in, in the same county, um, uh, in the same hospital, across state lines. So one of the things we're closely watching is that the changes in the treatment of COVID uh, patients, the care that they're giving, um, we obviously have learned a tremendous amount in the last 13, 14 months, but that standard of care has changed and it's going to be tough for somebody to find a, um, uh, somebody as an expert witness to, to say exactly what the standard of care was, you know, in rural Colorado on a Tuesday night back last July. Um, I think that's, that's going to be a challenge. Um, I think the immunity laws have yet to be tested. Um, so as we've said, maybe half the states have some kind of uh, immunity, but they haven't really been uh, tested um, uh, in, in the court system. Um, so we, we do see some protections related to that. Also, you hear the words uh, wartime or emergency declarations. Um, is this a different time? Will COVID be treated in the courts? So look, you know, this was a, a pandemic. This wasn't an ordinary time. I think you'll see some differences in, in, in jurisdiction. Um, s- some of these, um, uh, depending upon the state legislature, will be affected. And then the last thing I will leave you with is uh, there's this, there's many people thought uh, uh, on the defense side that the plaintiffs might come and say, wow, we're not going to sit on the sidelines. We'd like to settle these ones where we know there's some exposure. Um, but I talked to my colleagues and I have, we haven't seen a whole lot of that. There is definitely some of it. Um, depending upon the jurisdiction. But I, it does seem that uh, people are going to uh, sit um, on the sidelines. Um, and if the court system gets back up and running, and it is, and things like, you know, Zoom depositions or, you know, coming up to speed, um, it is highly likely there is a large backlog of medical malpractice claims. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out in time. Absolutely. I mean, talking with uh, some of the underwriters, you know, even though these immunity laws are in place, 
hundreds uh, and hundreds of cases are being filed uh, to, to your point about testing uh, some of these there and in, in, in the different areas. So, you know, with that in mind, are there any good resources that you would like to suggest for physicians in Georgia? Yeah, I would say um, there are four or five that come to mind. Um, one is um, we were just talking specifically about legislation. Uh, there is an association called MPLA. It's the malpractice um, uh, prevention, um, uh, I'm sorry, Malpractice Liability Association. Um, we are members, but there are m- most of the large carriers and small carriers are members. Um, and uh, their information and data um, you, can, you can access, but they track legislation and changes in legislation. Uh, so if you go onto their website, that's a great place to see what's going on around the country in terms of some of these immunity laws that we've been talking about. On the patient safety side, I mean, I think that the IHI uh, that you're familiar with and also um, uh, AHRQ, um, they're looking at uh, COVID from a patient safety, what can we do from both the practice side and the facility side. Uh, to that, I would add our own uh, website. Um, you know, you could go to medpro.com and, and um, we've put all of our COVID resources as have many of our competitors on the front end. So you don't need a password to get in to see them. Uh, we, we want to contribute, uh, raise the bar for everybody. So there are FAQs, which talk about coverage questions that practitioners may have. And then there's also the clinical stuff. Um, obviously, uh, all the clinicians listening are, are following the CDC updates. And the one that's specific for MedMal that I'd, I'd recommend to Georgia practitioners is Crico RMF. That's the Harvard uh, benchmarking database. Um, we, like many carriers, contribute to that. So it's based on you know thousands of physicians and hundreds of hospitals. So if they go to Crico, C-R-I-C-O, um, you can actually sign up uh, for a monthly blog where they do data analysis. You also um, uh, can sign on and you can download uh, their clinical benchmarking um, uh, reports uh, and you can see um, uh, how things are playing out on a, on a national basis. So I would say that those are uh, some good, good places to go to get information. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And um, I, the, the MedPro did a phenomenal job with their COVID-19 resource center. I, I do uh, share that with our, our members a lot. Um, so I definitely agree with you on that. I don't have to uh, reiterate your point on that. And um, other than that, uh, do you have any other uh, final key takeaway messages or anything else you'd like to uh, uh, communicate with our members about or make, make them aware of? Yeah, I, w- I would say COVID aside, um, you know, been doing this for uh, the last 30 years. Um, I've sort of come away with, with what I would say five takeaways are um, regarding risk management's uh, impact uh, on medical malpractice um, uh, in the United States. So uh, regardless um, uh, of the physician audience, um, uh, there are, uh, you know, half of medical malpractice claims um, that share common risks. If I was to talk to a physician in Georgia about issues such as communication, handoffs, and documentation, everybody would nod their head and say, yep, those we hear, yes, we understand. But then there's areas that are specific uh, to your specialty. Um, Let's pick a couple, bariatric surgery or robotic surgery that are very specific and unique, and we need to understand those risks. The third area, uh, and we've talked about some today, are what we call emerging risks, and I would chuck pandemics into that bucket, but things like genomics, precision medicine, artificial intelligence, telemedicine, drug resistance, those are going to be some areas that we're going to need to watch very carefully. 
The last two um, are uh, what I would call human factors design and engineering. We are humans. Uh, medicine will never be perfect. Uh, physicians will make mistakes. Um, so the real question is, um, can we understand these mistakes and could we actually design intensive care units, uh, operating theaters, emergency departments, um, labor and delivery suites that anticipate the types of common mistakes that we make and prevent them? Don't allow us uh, to make those kinds of mistakes. And the last I would leave you with is for every specialty, there's a group of five to 10 common high risk complaints. Uh, in my own field, emergency medicine, um, you know, is that uh, missed stroke? Is it um, the elderly and abdominal pain, pediatric sepsis, uh, missed myocardial infarctions in young women? I mean, those are areas that we know and we ought to focus uh, our energy on that. And last but not least, um, there's recent data that shows it's a very small amount of clinicians um, in, in the US, 1%, um, that contribute to 39% of paid indemnity. And so we need to um, uh, understand who those physicians are. Is there something going on in their lives? Um, can we uh, help them uh, with either uh, training or uh, sit down, have a cup of coffee with them? Um, and uh, so I think by focusing on high-risk complaints and individual specialties and uh, high-risk clinicians and trying to help them um, and understand what's going on uh, uh, in their lives. Is this a burnout issue, for example? Um, we could throw that in, a, in, in one of the emerging trends and the effect that that's having on all of us. So th th those will probably be my, my final thoughts to share. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Billingham, and, and our sincere thanks for you making time today to speak with us on these very important issues. Uh, and as always, we'd like to thank our tireless and heroic physicians and allied healthcare professionals and staff for everything they do every day. Um, from everybody at MAG, thanks for watching, and we'll catch you on the next edition of Top Docs. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching this episode of Top Docs. Please share this program with your colleagues and family and friends. Remember to follow MAG on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget that you can get past episodes of the show at mag.org backslash topdocs. From everybody at MAG, we look forward to catching up with you on our next episode of Top Docs.